We're in 1 Samuel 31, 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter of this book. Whether 1st and 2nd Samuel were intended to be separate books or not, I can't say. They are separate books in our Bible. And uh, this is uh, really a good transition point, the death of Saul here, 1st Samuel 31. Uh, we'll stand together and we'll read the chapter. It's a short chapter here. So let's go ahead and stand and we'll read um, this chapter together, 1 Samuel 31, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. And said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they that were on the other side Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, and when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt him there, them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, open the word to us this morning and help us to see not just uh, words on a page, not just a story, but to see your hand at work in this tragic event. I pray that you would encourage us from the word this morning and that we would be strengthened in our faith and confirmed in our duties. And Lord, that you would work a work in our midst this morning through the word that's preached. Please help me as I preach, Lord. I pray that you would guide and govern my tongue and help me to say only and always what you want. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> I'm preaching this morning an occasion for greatness. An occasion for greatness. We can't help but see the tragic end of a tragic reign, the life of King Saul. Never did a man show more promise than King Saul at the beginning of his reign. And never did a man 
trash and burn more ferociously than what King Saul did. We have known that this was coming for a while as we preached through Samuel. We've been coming to this. We know that we were coming to it. Still, you notice that the storyteller delays the telling of it as long as possible before letting us know of Saul's death. The last that we saw of King Saul, <clears throat> he had paid a visit to the witch of Endor and called up Samuel from the dead to give him a word from God. The word from God was not good. Through the mouth of Samuel, dead Samuel, the Lord said, because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow, Samuel said, and yet it's been a while since we have visited Samuel again, and we've done a few other things. And even if we had stayed on track and done consecutive weeks, still from chapter 28, we had to go through chapter 29 and chapter 30 before we come to this chapter. Notice that the Lord said that he would deliver Saul and all Israel into the hands of the Philistines the very next day. Tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. Still, the narrator is reluctant to get to that part of the story and to tell you what happened. And so he tells us the other things that were happening at this same time. The Philistines gathering against Israel in chapter 29. David invited to come along with them, considering it, actually. Ultimately rejected by them. The Amalekites in chapter 30, raiding Ziklag, carrying off into captivity all the wives of David and all of his men. David defeating the Amalekites, delivering the wives and children of his men. And then finally, when all else is said that could be said, we come back to the death of King Saul. As Dale Davis points out, 1 Samuel 31 opens with the Hebrew equivalent of, we now join the Battle of Gilboa already in progress. We jump into the middle of the battle. The Hebrew word rendered fought in verse 1 is a participle that shows continuing action. Literally, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And this is the moment the Bible drops us into the middle of the battle scene and there draws together the three chords of story that have been taking place. David, of course, off fighting the Amalekites and Saul off chasing the witch of Endor and then coming back and the Philistines gathering for battle on the battlefield. And so we have all three. Well, David is not here, but we, we see what is happening in the termination 
of this terrible event. The narrator doesn't elaborate much on the battle, doesn't tell us a lot of detail about it, and in fact gets right to the point in verse number two, you notice, and the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. That's the battle summary in a sentence right there. This is how it went. We're told right off the bat. This is how it went. It's sad. It's sad to think about all of this, the humanity of it. We get a little more detail about the way Saul died, and that will be important to know when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Saul was hit by the archers and was dying, but his death was not coming as quickly as he would have liked, and he knew what the Philistines would do with him if they found him alive. And he wasn't wrong about that, judging by what the Philistines did with his body when they found him dead. And so Saul begged his armor bearer to run him through. But his armor bearer was a loyal man, and, and he thought the same way of it as what David did earlier. How, how could I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? And so he had too much respect for Saul, too much reverence for God to do such a thing. He feared greatly to do it. And so Saul fell on his own sword and died. And when his armor bearer saw that he was dead, his armor bearer also fell on his sword and he died. And so Saul dies, his three sons die, his armor bearer dies, and all his men, which doesn't refer to the entire army of Israel, obviously, but rather to the men that were his unit of soldiers that stayed with him in battle. His officials and his bodyguard, his personal unit, were all killed on Mount Gilboa. Well, the armies of Israel, the men of Israel, saw Israelites fleeing the battlefield from the Valley of Jezreel, fleeing up into Mount Gilboa. They saw them fleeing and they caught the news and news travels fast on the battlefield. They heard the news that Saul and his sons were dead. And so they capitulated, they fled, they, they left their cities. Now apparently, this is what started this battle to begin with, the Philistines attempting to spread their, uh, their control over the nation of Israel. And the Philistine cities were mostly along the Mediterranean coast. And so the Philistines sought to capture all the cities in a straight line across the middle of Israel to the Jordan River and, and that region uh, and cut off Galilee in the north from Judea in the south, the tribe of Judah in the south. And now... The Israelites, because of the death of Saul, have abandoned the battlefield, abandoned their cities. And the Bible tells us that the Philistines went in and took control of the major cities along there and effectively then had cut Israel in half. King Saul led the troops of Israel to prevent this from happening. But now King Saul is dead. And so the next day, as the Philistines took the spoils from the battlefield, they found the bodies of Saul and of his sons. 
They mutilated those bodies, as verse 9 describes it, and they went into full celebration mode. Now, there is some difference between the account here in 1 Samuel 31 and the account that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. And the chronicler, the, the narrator always has a purpose in giving the details that he gives in a particular passage. But in verse 10 of our text, we're told that they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. First Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 10 says, and they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. There were in fact four temples, uh, heathen temples, Baal worship, four temples in the city of Bethshan, which was always a significant city in, uh, in that day. And so clearly, the Philistines decided to share the wealth, share the glory among the gods. And the point was, of course, that their gods had won them a great victory. This is the way they looked at it. It wasn't just army against army, but whose God is the greatest? And the Philistines believed then that our God has triumphed over Yahweh, their God. We see that also as a terrible tragedy. Worse, I think, than the death of King Saul is the idea the Philistines had that their God prevailed over the God of Israel. And yet we can't help but notice the way greatness rises out of this tragic battle. It can be hard to see the good in tragic events like this. It's much easier to say with the men of Israel, all is lost. Run for your lives. But I think this chapter proves the point that God is always at work displaying his own greatness and letting us see how greatness can rise up out of the shatters, shadows, out of the shattered ruins that we leave behind from our sin. And the providence of God, tragic circumstances often provide the platform for true greatness. In the death of King Saul, we remember three things that I think are evidenced in this passage, marks of greatness that we see here in this chapter. We remember his great son, Jonathan. We remember, we recognize his great God, and we marvel in an act of great gratitude. Let's begin by looking at Saul's great son. Through the passage, the passage only mentions the death of Jonathan and only mentions it in passing. It's it really no no attention is given to it at all. And yet, we need to pause and think about the greatness of this man, Jonathan, the greatness of this man. Because somehow Jonathan managed to be a faithful friend to David and a faithful son to Saul, even though Saul and Jonathan were at war, constant war with each other. 
And Jonathan was able to be a faithful friend to David and a faithful son to Saul without compromising his integrity at all. He wasn't playing both sides of the case of the issue. He wasn't <clears throat> sucking up to King Saul and then flattering King David, the future King David, at all. He did not betray his friend to his father. He did not abandon his father for the sake of his friend. Now, this is amazing. If you know how human relationships work, there are some times where there are two people who are so much at odds with each other that it is impossible, impossible to be friendly with both sides. And yet, in this most heated, most contentious of all relationships, Jonathan was able to do both while maintaining his own integrity. He didn't bow to his father's injustice against David, but he also did not reject his father. This is how you see the greatness of Jonathan right here. He died fighting alongside his father. He died fighting with his father against the Philistines. He gladly embraced David as, as Israel's future king. He knew that David would be the next king. He encouraged David in that. He rejoiced, in fact, that David would be Israel's next king. And yet, gladly died fighting alongside his father as Israel's rejected king. Dale Davis said, was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? Was that tragic? Oh, I mean, from our perspective, it looks tragic. But in reality, Jonathan died a man, a hero, a champion. And though when he died, that solidified it and he would never be able to be Israel's king because he was now dead. He entered a kingdom that cannot be taken away. The kingdom in the heavens that doesn't fade, where his, his reign would not grow old, he would not grow old as king, but would rule and reign forever there in heaven. Jonathan died right where he belonged, at his father's side, fighting for his people. Apart from the tragic death of Saul, the true hero, heroism of Jonathan should not be overlooked, must not be overlooked. <clears throat> we should not miss this chance to celebrate it, to recognize the greatness of it, to dwell on it here for a few moments. Understand something. We live in very polarizing times. It's hard for us to imagine having a friend that differs with us on political issues and things like that. <clears throat> we can have a hard time understanding how someone in our world can be loyal to both sides in a warring faction without compromising. And yet, here we have Jonathan who did this very thing and is an example to us as well. See, the way things go in our day and age, it's all or nothing. You know, if you're not right about everything, you aren't right about anything. And that's often how we look at it. 
We don't value relationships. When God gave us those relationships. Look, my loyalty to a friend on one side of the debate does not require my rejection of a friend on the other side of the debate. Jonathan teaches us how to navigate these treacherous relationships. Be loyal to the Lord and be loyal to the truth. That's how you do it. That's how you can be a Jonathan. Because Jonathan's true loyalty was to the Lord and to his truth. And because he was loyal to that, he could be a faithful friend to David and a faithful son to King Saul. Make that your first loyalty. Be loyal to the Lord. Be loyal to his word. Be loyal to his truth. And then when you find yourself in the midst of a personality conflict, you will know how to maintain your integrity without the need to abandon your friends. Did Saul and David have a personality conflict? I don't know if we should characterize it as that. Definitely Saul was in rebellion against the Lord. David was running for his life. The personality conflict, if it was that, seems to be all on one side, the king's side, who was jealous of David, envious of David. David, of course, showed a lot of restraint. We respect him in all of that. David certainly did not call on Jonathan to choose which side you're on in this thing here. Still, though, all things being equal, every one of us at one time or another are likely to get caught up in a personality conflict. You find yourself in the middle of one of those, Ambrose Bierce called it a strife of interest that masquerades as a contest of principles. Um, it, it sounds like when, when you hear them describe it, it's all about principle, but in reality, it's all about personality. <clears throat> so let me, let me point this out to you. When you find yourself caught up in a personality conflict, follow the example of Jonathan, and that way you'll know how to stand in it. Be loyal to truth, but also, and I believe this is an important thing, something that's not stressed nearly enough, especially in churches. Don't just be loyal to the truth. Be loyal also to the relationships that God has placed in your life. Be loyal to those. I see young men grow up and decide that my dad was a loser. My dad was no good. My dad was you know, he just wasn't a strong man. He just wasn't faithful. He just wasn't this. He just wasn't that. And besides that, he gave me a lot of flack when I tried to do what I was going to do. And so they reject their dad. They abandon him. That's not right. That's not what we ought to do. And loyalty to truth clearly does not require it or else Jonathan could never have been faithful, fought by his, died by the side of his father. But this is what I see happening quite often. Young men, men, you know, in their teens, late teens, early 20s, who suddenly develop this very defined sense of ethics. 
and apply it to their father and find fault with him. And then, as a result, they reject him. Don't be perfectionist with your dad. If you want to be perfectionist, be perfectionist with yourself. But not with your dad. I say this to you that we should have an extreme amount of tolerance, an extreme amount of patience when it comes to the fallen relationships that surround us. Be loyal to the truth, but also to the relationships that God has put in your life. Jonathan, I'll say it again, I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing it on purpose. Jonathan died by his father's son. That is a mark. Did I say his son? He died by his father's side. He died by his father's son too because his brothers also died. He died by his father's side and that is a mark of greatness right there. When you know the story, when you know the circumstances, when you remember that Saul in his envy, in his rage against David, picked up a spear and threw it at Jonathan, attempting to kill him. When you remember the insults that Saul hurled at Jonathan about his mother of all things. Remember that, folks. Remember that. Jonathan, this is what I'm trying to say. Jonathan died where God intended that he should die. Let that be a lesson to all of us. We can stand for truth and right and we can do what's right. I'm not telling you to compromise for the sake of your dad. We can do what's right without abandoning the relationships that God has given us. Jonathan showed his greatness many different ways throughout his life but I think none greater than the way he died. Because he died fighting for the country he would never rule as king. He was equipped to rule. He was qualified to rule. Now, I've said before, sometimes when you look at the story, it seems almost like the wrong son of Kish was chosen to be king. Like God should have waited another generation and picked Jonathan. Of course, we wouldn't say that kind of thing, but, but you know what I mean. Jonathan was much better, would have been a much better king. And he died fighting alongside the father who treated him badly, who shamed him publicly, who was so obsessed with killing David that he drove away his own son. Jonathan saw his duty, and he was true to that duty. He didn't join David's renegade band and fight against his father. Notice that. He didn't sit out the battle and say, Dad, you're on your own on this. I can't have anything to do with you. He saw where he belonged. He knew where his place was. And he took up position by his father's side in that battle. And he died a hero's death. 
I'm thankful for this story, the story of the death of King Saul, because it gives us an opportunity to see greatness in Jonathan, his son. But then I also want you to notice, and this is probably, this is the center point here in what I'm going to say. And something that we should notice here in this passage. And that is Saul's great God. Saul's great God. Of course, we recognize God's justice in the death of Saul. And though this passage doesn't mention that at all, we know that this is the point. God had said he would take the kingdom away from King Saul. God had on the night before said that Saul would die and God kept that promise. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 10 makes much of the fact. In verses 13 and 14, So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto unto David, the son of Jesse. God is always vigilant to keep his word. Always. And I know that we get caught up in the emotion of things and we think about the emotional element of King Saul dying. We know that there were problems and that he had some problems and we know that he was in sin and we know that this was the judgment of God, but still, still we hate it. We we, we, we would like it, I think, to see God hold back his hand of judgment and perhaps even change his mind and let it go and let bygones be bygones. But God is just. The justice of God is as rock solid as the bedrock of anything in this world. You can be absolutely certain of it. He does not lay aside his justice, not for anyone Not for anything. The fact that is that God did not lay aside his justice even when dealing with his own son. And if God would not hold back the call of justice in the case of his own son when his son had taken upon himself the sins of the whole world, you can be absolutely certain that God will not restrain his hand when it comes to us as sinners. But... There's also, by the way, comfort that we can take in this because if God is that diligent, that vigilant to keep his promise about justice, we can be also sure, certain, absolutely certain that God will keep his promise of good to his people, to comfort his people, to relieve his people. All the promises that God made to David, he is about to fulfill right now. And so we see the greatness of God in this. God promised to bring an end to the reign of King Saul and God kept the promise. And though we might see tragedy in the story, we should also rejoice that the, the justice of God always triumphs. But there's something else that this tragedy exposes about God, and I want you to see it because we see the greatness of God in something else here. And 
it's kind of a roundabout, so I want you to I want you to bear with me for a moment here. Here's how we see the greatness of God through this tragedy. God is not at all concerned about his reputation. Okay, now bear with me for a moment while I explain. We might even say that God can afford to let men think that he got it wrong. To let men think wrong things about him, false things about himself. God can afford to let people think wrongly about himself. Here's what I mean. When the Philistines had killed Saul and his three sons, they cut off Saul's head. They put his armor up in the house of Ashtaroth, the house of their gods. They hung the bodies. They nailed the bodies to the city walls of Bethshan. And they fastened the head of King Saul in the temple of Dagon. And they published it throughout the land. Our gods have triumphed over Yahweh. This is what I'm saying. Now, let's back up for a moment and let me explain something to you in case you didn't know this. The gods of the Philistines never triumphed over Yahweh. Not for a minute. They thought they did, but they did not. Dagon, where is he today? Does anybody know? I'm going to say, you know, I'm just going to venture to say, Dagon is in the same place today that he was right then. Which is to say nowhere. Because he was no God at all. He never was a God. Baal and Asherah, they were nothing, nothing at all. They did not triumph over Yahweh. Yahweh was triumphing in the world at that moment, despite the fact that that the Philistines thought that their win, their victory on the battlefield, meant a whole lot more than what it really did. Have you ever seen someone celebrate a win in a preseason game like they had won the Super Bowl? Yeah, that's what the Philistines are doing right here. Now we know that the Philistines always looked at their battles with Israel as a war between their gods and the God of Israel. So, and that wasn't unique to the Philistines. That was the case with all, all the nations, all the heathen in that day. And it is in ours as well. What amazes me, and honestly, I, I, and I don't want to sound um, pretentious here in what I'm saying. All right. Because I, I have referenced a couple things that if I were God, I would not do. I just can't imagine how it could be a strategic a strategic move for God to let the Philistines think their God had triumphed over him. That's from a human perspective, we would never do that. We would make sure and crush anyone who rose up against us. But God works his plan according to his will without regard for the false conclusions unbelievers might draw from it. Unbelievers are not the only ones to draw false conclusions sometimes from the works of God. Now, 
if I could remind you, these are the same Philistines who had to pick Dagon up off the floor and reattach his hands and his head to his body when the when Dagon was in the presence of the Ark of the Lord. It, surely you would think that the Philistines would recognize that this was supernatural right here. This this should tell us something. When they got their emeralds, remember? And when they passed the Ark of the Lord from village to village. I mean, this is all in this same time that this is happening. And they're passing the Ark of God from village to village and every village where it goes falls under a severe curse. You would think that the Philistines would come to recognize it. And then when they loaded up the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and, and, and yoked two mother cows together and tied up their young calves who were crying out to be fed. And then they said, let's see where the ark goes. And the ark went, I mean, like those cows, those heifers made a beeline for Israel and willingly gave their life in sacrifice. You would think that the Philistines would look at that and get the hint, right? But, you know, they're Philistines. What do you expect here from Philistines? But how quickly and how easily unbelievers are persuaded to return to their unbelief. And so just a little while later, the Philistines are thinking that, yep, we did it. We did it. We conquered not just Israel, but Yahweh himself. But of course, the glory in all of this, the greatness in all of this is that we don't have to wait for God to vindicate himself. We don't have to. God does not feel any urgent need to vindicate himself in the world. None at all. You've all heard of atheists who stood out there and said, if God is God, let lightning strike me. See, lightning didn't strike me. So he is not God. That's a really bad argument. Let's just, let's just say it that way. The Philistines are celebrating their triumph over the gods of Yahweh. And meanwhile, God goes on being God and the gods of the Philistines, Ashtaroth, Dagon, and all the rest of the trailer park of Philistine gods, go on being not God. See, those are the two categories. There is the category God and the category not God. Yahweh is in this category, God. All the others are in the other category, not God. <clears throat> what a God we serve. Never threatened by false assumptions that people make about him. Now we've all had those moments. You're listening to the news, you're looking online and you hear the news, some horrible news, someone respected figure that you supported, that you stood with. He was the leader of your side. And then you find that he fell. He said something. You're thinking, no, tell me he didn't say that. He said it. Or you hear the rumor, the report that he did something, some horrible thing, some scandalous thing. And you're thinking, oh my, this is horrible. This is terrible. And we immediately recognize the disgrace. Not just... To him, but to his cause as well. We worry, in fact, 
if we're really honest, we worry that our side, our cause, might be lost because of this thing. What a risky thing it is for God to ever let one of his preachers be exposed by scandal. And yet, countless times, God has let his preachers be exposed by scandal. What do we say when that happens? We say you've done damage to the cause of Christ. We say, yeah, that guy just gave God a black eye. I've heard people say that. Let's don't hang too much on our reputations, folks. Seriously. Let's don't. Let me remind you that if the greatest, the most important preacher in the world falls into scandalous, disgraceful sin, is exposed as a fake and a charlatan, and he's the one that we all look to for leadership. God is still God. Still God. He didn't stop. He didn't start being God because that guy was promoting him. He didn't stop being God because that guy fell. And the great men of our generation, when the great leaders of our movement all die off, will be just like in the days of King Saul. Or the day when King David died, or when Solomon died, or when John the Baptist died, or when John the Apostle died, or when Peter died, or when Paul died. For that matter, our Lord Jesus Christ died. Our religion is built on his death, burial, and resurrection. But this is the point. The truth has outlived all of its greatest champions. All of them. And other champions will arise, and the truth will outlive them too. <clears throat> the truth outlives its heroes because the heroes aren't great. God is great. He puts on a display of his own greatness in those times when it looks like to us God's about to get a black eye. He doesn't get black eyes. We can't give God a black eye, no matter how bad we are, no matter how hard we try. We can bring ourselves into disgrace and scandal. We can cause his enemies to blaspheme his holy name. We can give men occasion against God. But nothing, nothing we do will damage his cause. Because it's his cause. And he is God. And so God will let the light shine on some terrible sins that we're hiding. And let us be exposed even though it makes him look bad. And he'll do this because God is not working according to our plan or our agenda or our priorities. He doesn't work our way. He is God. He is great. And in tragic moments like the death of King Saul, the enemy will dance on our graves 
and shout the highest heaven their triumph over us. And God watches with amusement, mild amusement, I'd say, from heaven and hears the gloating and sees all of that, but knows that he is still Lord of Lords and King of Kings and God of Gods, and that doesn't change. God doesn't need to show off his greatness to anybody. He doesn't need to prove to anyone that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is the champion, the mighty conqueror. He doesn't need to do that. In the immortal words of King Nebuchadnezzar, who learned this lesson a different way, still a hard way, but a different way, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? So we see in this tragic story of the death of King Saul, we see a great son, Jonathan. We see a great God, a God who is secure in his greatness and doesn't have to prove it. There's one more mark of greatness in this chapter. I want to show it to you. Saul had, and this is shocking to us, but Saul had some great friends as well. <clears throat> the great gratitude of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Now you might be thinking, gratitude, where did the gratitude come into the story? Well, you might remember that back when Saul first became the king, Nahash the Ammonite demanded, really as a token of their subservience to himself, he demanded that the men of Jabesh Gilead surrender their right eyeballs to him, all of them. They said, you can rule over us. And he said, as a token of your sincerity, I demand that you pluck out your right eyeballs and give them to me. And the men of Jabesh Gilead sent a message to King Saul. It was, it was one of those places where King Saul started out so well, so disappointing to see how it ended with him. But rather than let the men of Jabesh Gilead be humiliated and enslaved this way, King Saul sent round about the kingdom, roused up the men of Israel, 300,000 strong, slew the Ammonites, the Bible says, until the heat of the day. And it came to pass, that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. It probably was Saul's greatest moment. And the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot it. When they heard that the bodies of Saul and of his sons had been fastened to the wall of Bethsham, they ran all night and took the, the bodies down. Now, when the Bible says it, it looks like it was just kind of like running across town and stealing those bodies off of there. But that would not be true. Jabesh Gilead was on the other side of the Jordan River, about 10 miles from Bethshan. <clears throat> the temples of Bethshan were on top of a steep hill as well, a high point there in the city. And so in order to get to these bodies, the men of Bethshan I'm sorry, the men of Jabesh Gilead had to expose themselves to the, the, the enemy. <clears throat> so what they did 
was a feat not just of great strength, but of great courage as well. It reminds me of the lengths that people will go to when they are driven by gratitude. Gratitude is probably the most underrated motivation um, and yet the most intense motivation that we ever feel. True gratitude. That's why so much of the Christian life is driven by gratitude, gratefulness, and why gratitude should be promoted and lifted up and exalted and, and why we should be in the practice of praising the Lord all the day long, of expressing our gratitude uh, to, to Him. Let this example of extreme gratitude thrill your heart because we would not have the chance to see such greatness if it were not for the tragedy of Saul's death. Do you see the way in the Bible, you read a story like this, and what good could be in 1 Samuel 31? Well, we pointed out three marks of greatness that rise to the surface in this chapter. The most terrible tragedies can be used by God to stir our hearts and help us see the triumph of the Christian faith in the face of terrible tragedy. Now, don't think that this tragedy in King Saul's life is unusual. Almost always, when storm clouds rise on the horizon, we can brace ourselves for some showers of blessing. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. I wouldn't encourage you to look at tragic circumstances as your opportunity to build your brand. It would be foolish on your part if you were to ask God to bring tragedy into your life so that you can show how great you really are. And the chances are, if you were to pray that way, when the tragedy came, you would show actually how weak and feeble and frail you are and how overrated your greatness was in your own mind. When you face tragedy, look for a great God to shine through it because that's the way it works. In some cases, he'll shine through some obscure Christian, a Jabesh Gileadite, who reaches out in a great way, who stands by you in a great way, who shows great courage to be your friend. Sometimes you'll see great steadfastness in a moment when it seems like people would shrink away from you and abandon you. And sometimes you will see a great injustice corrected in that tragedy. But always you should look to your great God, you should trust in him, you should worship him and praise him because he brings these trials into your life so that in all things he might triumph through you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. Thank you for uh, the great examples that we see here in this chapter. Your greatness, of course, Jonathan's great loyalty to his father and the men of Jabesh Gilead and their great gratitude to King Saul. And all these things 
are good reminders to us of what we ought to be and what we ought to do. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust you in the face of difficulty. You've never promised to keep us from suffering. In fact, we know that you have ordained suffering as a means of perfecting us as your saints. And so, Lord, as difficulties come in our lives, I pray that we would rest in you and trust you. And I pray that we would uh, look to see a great God shining through these difficult times. And I pray that we would be looking to you in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me? Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I, I trust that the Lord has used the message here to encourage and strengthen your heart, that you are strengthened by what you've heard. Look, we're all going to face difficulty and suffering is going to be part of, uh, part of our Christian life. And in those times, it's easy to become introspective and to look at me and, and, and what a mess I'm in and what a difficulty this is for me. And God, would you please rescue me from it? Would you deliver me from it? But I think that it would be better for us to learn to look to God, to teach us from it, and to let us catch a fresh glimpse of his greatness in the face of it. So if the Lord has used the message to encourage you, I want to encourage you to take this moment and review those things, rehearse those things with the Lord, lift them up to him, ask him to help you to get the right message from it. If you have a decision that you need to make or a step that you need to take for the Lord, I would encourage you to come here to the front as well and make use of uh, this time to kneel here at the front and deal with these things in a significant way as the invitation song is played. If you need to come, please do right now.
you can be seated.